You are listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast series and syndicating for the A-List Online. My name's Andrew Mackay-Smith, and before I go any further, I want to wish all of my listeners a very Merry Christmas and all the best through 2019. I've got an extraordinary interview subject for you coming up. His name is Michael Beinhorn. And Michael, if you're listening, I really hope I pronounced your surname correctly there, so if I haven't, my apologies. Michael is a very gifted producer. He's worked with, these are just a few of the bands that he's worked with, and I do talk a little bit about this through the conversation. Soundgarden, Hole, Corn, Marilyn Manson, Social Distortion, Ozzy Osbourne, The Golden Palominos, Herbie Hancock, and Soul Asylum. I didn't want to punish Michael too much through the conversation. As you can imagine, my interest in a lot of these bands is deep, and the conversation could easily have gone on for a couple of hours. But what you've got here is 40 minutes or so of Michael talking about a selection of bands here that he's produced, but also to discuss, and this is the reason for the conversation I might add, what he's doing these days. It turns out he's got a whole suite of solutions and services available to the working musician. So without further delay, here he is, Michael Beinhorn, the producer. First things first, mate. Merry Christmas, and I hope uh, all uh, things go really well for you through t- 2019. Well, thank you, and the very same to you. Mm. How's uh, when you reflect on 2018? What are your thoughts? Um, <laughs> that's a very general question. Um, <laughs> it's, I mean, it's funny because like a lot of stuff has happened that um, is obviously indirectly and directly affecting everyone in a lot of the same ways. Mm. Um, for me personally, obviously it's kind of different. Um, <laughs> it's definitely been a very turbulent year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's uh, not always in the best possible way. <laughs> yep. Um, but apart from but apart from political stuff, um, it's been it's actually been really exciting. Yep. Um, it's been one of it's been one of my best years ever, um, in so many ways. Wow, that's um, really saying something too. Yeah, with all all of the wonderful uh, people oh, you've worked with and the resume no, you've got. It's incredible. It's 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 incredible. It's been a very inspiring year, um, and I've been able to uh, do a lot of things that uh, I really have been, I've been kind of talking and planning about for a long time. And on top of everything else, I've got a, I've got a baby son. So, you know, that kind of, that enhanced everything immensely. So yeah, it's been, for, for me personally, it's been, it's been an extraordinary year. And in general, I'd say. And and look, there, there are so many episodes throughout your career that I'd love to have a chat to you about because I am a teenager teenager from the 90s. So it was, it was inevitable that if you were a teenager through the 90s, you stumbled across your name in liner notes and got to know you through so many of the wonderful albums that you had so much to do with through engineering or production or whatever it might have been. But I tell you, the, uh-huh. the opportunity for our chat is because these days, and I think there's six or seven different items here that were sent across in your bio. Okay, so you've got pre-production. These are services you're offering these days. Pre-production, yeah. One that I hadn't quite heard of before, to be quite honest, which was pre-pre-production. You've got <laughs> <laughs> you got song analysis. Mm. You've got recording production, pre-recording project analysis, which I think is just brilliant, and artist development. Now, in this day and age of virtually no A and R, 
of cynically manufactured pop stars. I guess they've always been around, but they're just so bloody prevalent these days. <laughs> you know, you know, the death of the rock and ro- of rock and roll and the rock and roll star, as far as the mainstream media is concerned, and of course, the end of record companies as we knew them for at least the previous fifty years. I think all of the services that you're now offering are essential for any serious collective of musicians, really, no matter where what stage they are. In, in their career. So, mate, what's inspired you to make yourself so available to the working musician through so many wonderful applications? Um, I just saw that no one else was doing it. You know, I mean, I, I think, I, I think innovation comes from seeing an opening and deciding to fill the space. Like I, I, I I'm not saying that these types of services are particularly lucrative. I mean, I would actually go so far as to say they're probably anything but, Hmm. Yes, I imagine. (laughs) Yeah, It's not the kind of thing that can make anyone, certainly not me, a a whole lot of money, but I couldn't care less about that. Like, I'm just listening to the types of recordings that people are doing right now. And I just feel that that they, they lack so much in terms of spirit, in terms of ingenuity, in terms of expression in terms of, you know, just the way you used to be able to listen to music and get excited by it. Like, I see people being turned on by music in a, in a way, but I don't see anyone getting excited about it in the way that I know I used to and, yeah. and actually was able to do up till, you know, I, I guess like 20, 25 years ago, things started to kind of like taper off drastically. And mm. Like, I, I feel that the public are, are being cheated <laughs> in a lot of ways. I feel like they're not being given the full experience of what music is, and it's become something that can be employed as wallpaper yeah. rather than something that absolutely rivets you and takes you on a journey and will not relinquish its hold over you for anything. That's what music is supposed to be. It can't be wallpaper all the time. I mean, there's nothing wrong with music, be, some music being wallpaper, it should be. There's room for all of it, though. And we don't have that right now. And, you know, you talk about rock music dying. Rock, uh, any, any issues with rock music's mortali- mortality at all pertains to how it's being created right now. Mm. That people treat it as something... They, like, like, people have really mistakenly applied this very punk rock ethic to music to rock music creation now Hmm. where it's kind of like just write the song get it recorded boom the end because rock music isn't something that needs a whole lot of thought and that's just pure idiocy i think you can you can you can really employ that 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 kind of aesthetic yep to to rock music creation if a you are really making music that relies on that degree and level of spontaneity and or, and or B if you're actually technically capable of being able to pull something off that's that that's that compelling and requires that little thought. Otherwise you're in the same boat with everyone else and you have to really consider what you're doing very carefully before you do it instead of making half cocked or, you know, semi artistic statements in the world. And that's what we're, that's what we're dealing with right now. People who aren't really putting their best foot forward before they act. And this is, that's really a lot of the basis for why I've decided to do this. And 
I, I, I've decided to make it available to everybody. I mean, there are artists I'm working with now who are actually really established. Mm. Um, you know, but they, but what surprises me about that is that I, I'm working with, with artists who've had, you know, careers for like, I guess the better part of 25 years and no one in that time period has actually taken the time to analyze their music. They just figured, Oh, if this guy can write like a hit single, every record he does, or maybe two, I don't give a shit what the rest of his record mm. sounds like. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm, like, I do. Yeah. And, and, but, but the thing is, is that you are depriving these incredibly talented people of so much. When you give them the ability to have insight into their own work, so that they can actually take a step back and go, oh, wow, this could be so much better. Like, you've essentially given them the, the opportunity to be much more creative than they would be on their own without any kind of objective input. You know, this is really important stuff we're talking about. It's, very, mm -hmm. it's essential. Everything about this is at least important as the act of physically recording a record. Mm. Well, yeah, it... it and what you're saying is absolutely reflected in the quality of a lot of the material that we're hearing. Um, when, so I get a lot of albums sent to me. The majority of them are usually pretty good, but there are a few that where it's like, holy moly, they needed to get in touch with a, a Michael Beinhorn, Beinhorn, sorry, in order yeah. to better understand. Okay, you talk about this is one question for you here. So pre pre-production, of course, anybody. I'm a musician, okay, so I volunteer that now. So I understand the idea of pre-production. Sure. But pre-pre-production, is that something... Well, tell us all about that. That's the best way to start that. Well, that really pertains to uh, being able to, I guess, work on the record um, via correspondence. To tell you the truth, I've kind of rolled the two into one another since, I, since that all got prepared. Because okay. everything that I'm doing at this point is via correspondence, you know? That really came about because I, I was starting records that I was producing with a lot of preparatory work that didn't, that wasn't necessarily, I didn't necessarily associate it with pre-production. I, I kind of considered the pre-production phase more of like a combination of sitting with the artist face-to-face um, -face and being in rehearsal. Hmm. Now, it's, now for me, it's kind of rolled into like one, one thing. And actually, the rehearsal aspect of it has kind of taken a back seat because most artists don't have the kind of money to be able to afford to bring mm -hmm. me yeah. out to where they are and uh you know for me to sit in a rehearsal room with them for a couple of days like a few weeks that's obviously going to be pricey on every level you know plus putting me up putting me in a plane stuff yeah. like that um you know so i'm looking at this from the perspective of what's cost effective for musicians for artists as well right now mm. Yeah, that's a really good point because in a day and age where uh, recording consoles or doors are available pretty much for nothing if people want to pirate them and they're recording these things in their own bedrooms and then I think you, you either you expressed a point really well there where they're just putting stuff out there without any of this pre-production, pre-song analysis or what have you and they're just hoping it sticks because, hey, they can write one song and if they can write one song, well, then that's a wonderful thing because guess what? Nobody else is listening to the rest of the album. They'll just hear this one song on a Spotify playlist and the album, well, that'll be out there for the poor saps that just happen to like still buying albums, which there are a lot of rock fans that fall into that category. Well, and, and, and it's, this is an insult to them. It's an insult to the public to make records like this. I mean, there's, 
people now are la- who who make records je- by and large are laboring under this mistaken notion that the album is essentially a teaser for the live show mm. you know which is the complete polar opposite of what may, of what records used to be but it really kind of illustrates the value or lack thereof that the rec- that the album really kind of um i guess engenders in this day and age mm. that it's that it's subpar in importance to the live to the to the live performance, which is nonsense. You know why one should be lesser than the other is beyond me. But really, it's all it's become a matter of economics. So pe- this is why people rush records, why they don't put any thought into making records. The last record I produced, which was quite frankly quite a while ago, mm. um, and, and one of the reasons that I decided I couldn't really do that type of work as much anymore was with an artist who was on like this blistering tour schedule and they'd eked out like a certain amount of time to record their record. And they, they were sort of like writing songs while they were on the road, yeah, not taking work. a whole lot of yeah. time to be able to, I mean, you, you, you've seen that movie before, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like, and, and what that means is when it comes time to cut the record, you don't really, you can't really judge the quality of the music, whether this is going to be received well, and all of a sudden, whether you're thinking about it or not, and if you're the artist, you really aren't thinking about it at all because you've been on this breakneck touring schedule, Hmm. you could be looking down the barrel of ending your own career. And I've seen that happen a bunch of times where people have been in that position and really trying to make a record with this artist and helping them along and trying to get them to see what they were in the process of doing to themselves Hmm. was a lot of work. And I was like, I can't participate in this anymore. It's not right. This, the, the architecture of how this is done needs to be completely different for the sake of the artists, because they're, these are very talented individuals. They should have what they should have enough time and enough breathing room to kind of create the sort of record that they want to make. Not that, not just that they need to make based on how that works into their touring schedule because they're because then they're thinking about what's going to, what's benefiting management record companies. Yeah. Because all these yeah. interests that are separate yeah. from their own, you know, this stuff isn't, isn't as important all of a sudden the actual record, which is the only document, the only document that's left over when all is said and done, when the tours are done, when the guys get old, they don't want to do it anymore. The document is still existing. It's the record that you didn't quite do. You didn't quite get the statement that you wanted to make. Hmm. You didn't quite. You didn't quite hit the peak that you could have hit if only you'd spent a little bit more time. But but people are are so obsessed with like the present moment and also with the future about like the immediate future, the touring schedule. How is this going to fit into my touring schedule? You know, hmm. instead of like, no, this this record is going to outlast me. This record will be here after I'm gone. You know, what do I want it to say? How do I want it to represent me? You know, if you don't think in those terms, you're in danger of making a record that's going to be mediocre. Mm. And there, there are two genres that come to mind straight away, of which I interview quite a lot of the, the leading lights across the globe within, and that's metalcore and deathcore. So they're relatively newish genres mm-hmm. that have emerged in the last 15 years or so. So they've got a plethora of wonderful ideas. Check that they've got that. Can the, can the guys and girls mm-hmm. in those bands play? My God, can they play? They're probably some of the most accomplished musicians that I've heard ever. 
Okay. Oh, Some of these, like they're yep. in, in cross between Ingve Malmsteen and Steve Vai sort of playing this sort of stuff, but they're playing very heavy stuff. It's like Morbid Angel style tuning, so low C, that, <laughs> that sort of thing. But they really need somebody like you, a lot of these kids, to come across and go, hang on a sec, guys, let's craft an album because so much of the music sounds exactly the same from band, not even just across an album, but from band to band because they're using similar techniques and they don't have a lot of critical analysis through the production so my question for you would be with regards to deathcore metalcore and some of the heaviest styles have you heard any of it and do you agree with some of my some of my statements there about what these kids are doing and how you could improve how you, your involvement could definitely improve their end result um stylistically i'm pretty sure i have actually i was in copenhagen like was it three years ago or something and I was working with some artists and standing outside of a room. I happened to be in this rehearsal, this building with a bunch of rehearsal halls. And I found myself standing outside of this one room, listening to people play to it, uh, in a way and to an extent that I had never in my life heard before. The precision of it was beyond anything I could possibly imagine. And I realized that these are people who've come up listening to rec recordings that have been so heavily edited in Pro Tools and quantized that they're starting, that, that they actually play like this with absolutely no feel, but so incredibly fast and so precise that they literally sound like machinery. Yeah. And it, it was, I have to say, it was absolutely stunning. I mean, I, I, my mouth was, was on the ground, my jaw, not my mouth. When you know what you mean. Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't bring a toothbrush. Um, it was uh, it was absolutely staggering, and I also realized that it was something I would never purchase. I would never I would never want to buy. I would never. I think I would want to listen to it at home just to marvel over the performing. Yeah. But as far as the compositional stuff, it was there was nothing to it. It was basically for the sake of the capability that the individuals had, that they had this ability to be able to play like this. That's all it was. And as far as being able to make me, I, I think it's, uh, that, that, that genre probably suffers from some of the same issues that um, certain forms of like techno and dance music suffer from. And that's that the, um, the, the, the people are so caught up with the technical aspects of how it's created, that they can't possibly imagine the idea of being able to construct a song. Um, I've heard people come close with some with certain forms of like metal. I shouldn't, you know, I shouldn't be so quick to say that because now that I'm thinking back, I have heard some stuff where the compositional aspects were really interesting, where there were like movements and the dynamics were really, really good. But I think um, I think you're spot on wait. with your point, though. I think you've actually nailed it, though, because they a lot of the because these these musicians a lot of them are in their early twenties, and I think they suffer from the fact that they might have come through a schooling system where there wasn't a lot of the discipline that you and I experienced when we went through school. Because I'm in my forties, and right, and I don't know whether they're as willing to take instruction as they are just willing to back themselves. But in backing themselves, they're making mistakes that didn't necessarily needed to need to be put to a recording. And so you bang on about the precision and about it being machine-like, but it lacks some emotion and some spirit. And I think a lot of these well, guys and girls, man, if they just had somebody like you in their corner going, hang on a sec, what you're doing is great, but let's reframe it this way or let's put it to a different narrative, 
they'd probably end up having careers out of it rather than just one or two albums. <laughs> well, I, I, now, now I think we're on to a, a slightly different topic, you know, because the thing is, is that when you, if, if you put something to that, something like that to, to an artist or a musician who is, uh, who has basically developed a skill set out of, uh, um, based around genre, Hmm. as opposed to just the, the need to express oneself, you essentially have to walk them back or forward, depending on, on, on where they're coming from, and, go, and, and have them reexamine their priorities. Like it, it, and, and I think, but I think for a lot of people, it really does come down to the fundamental question of why are you doing this? Hmm. Like, what does this mean to you? What are you trying to say? You know, have you ever considered this? Now's the time to do so, you know? Does this mean something to you? If so, what? You know, what are you trying to say? What is the fundamental message that you're trying to get out into the world? Because if it's just about look how fast and how precise, with, with what precision I can play my guitar, no one's mm. going to give a shit. Mm. Like, really, you give a shit. Your mom might give a shit. Your friends might give a shit. And, a hand, and maybe 500 other people in the world might at some point in their lives give a shit, but no one else. You know, unless you can, unless you can dig down inside and find a fundamental reason for doing this, a, a sense of intent, a mission statement, even. Yes. you know, something yep. where you, where you kind of recognize and understand and are in touch with the fundamental need that a human being has to express themselves beyond, beyond this kind of like egotistical desire to become like the most precise guitarist in Copenhagen, <laughs> you know, or wherever <laughs> it's like, it ain't going to matter to anyone else. It ain't going to make any difference. And ultimately, you're wasting your own time because you'll get tired of this. It's, this is, that's not an ambition. And it, if so, it's an ambition that may last a couple of years at best. It's boring. Mm. You know? What's exciting is going deep inside and finding that, that expressive core that every human being has, but only a handful are able to use as, an, as a medium to be able to speak to other people. Mm. Indeed, indeed. All right, I'm going to change gears if that's cool. And look, I'd love to ask you about a number of the albums that you've been involved with over the years. And some of these albums are my personal okay. favourites of all time, so I hope that's cool. And, and, I've picked, yeah, and I've picked some interesting ones, and believe me, I've, I've gone through your interviews with Google, and I'm going to avoid any of the, the typical conversations that people try to have with you, because as a musician, to be okay. honest with you, I generally don't care about a lot of the superfluous <laughs> stuff. I just want to hear from somebody like yourself who's been up close and personal with musicians, what they were like to work with. So my first one is Aussie, because you worked with, on the Osmosis album in 1995, which is one of my favourite Aussie albums, it must be said. Oh, wow. And cool, thank you. Look, it's probably also, and this is my, my words here, of course, this is probably the last album that I think he was actually coherent because I saw him in 1998 <laughs> in, in, down here in Australia mm. and he was on top of his game. He was actually pretty good. But I saw him again 10 years later in 2008 and he was singing a full beat behind the rest of the band and I don't think that was just then. I think he's still doing it. But, okay, uh -huh. you've seen, everybody knows Ozzy, Sharon, you know, there's the social aspect of it, but very little is out there in the public domain about what Ozzy is like in the studio. So can you tell us what he was like as an actual musician? So remove the, you know, the Prince of Darkness tag, and as a bloke who just has to record his cut, what was he like as a fellow to work with? Um, I, honestly, I, I, I don't think that he enjoyed being in, in the recording studio very much. I think he really preferred being on tour, being mm. on the road. 
Um, so I think it was kind of laborious for him. Um, I mean, you know, obviously everyone has their own personal choice about what they wanted to, what they want to do. I mean, I have to say that it, it wasn't always very pleasant working with him, but he, he was, he is easily one of the funniest people I've, <laughs> I've right. ever worked with in my life. Um, his, he has this uncanny ability to be able to tell a story and then tell it probably the same story five times uh, <laughs> over. I think, you know, obviously probably not remembering that he'd already told it. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> somehow, even though you're, you know that you're going to get the same punchline or the same, you know, the same re- resolution to the story, you would somehow find yourself on the floor laughing anyway. Hmm. Um, he, so he is, he's a fantastic ability to tell stories and make people laugh. Um, you know, working, working was difficult. Um, and it was, it was, frankly, it was a very hard record to get made. Right. Um, you know, there are a lot of musicians that, that went and came and went on that album. So you, is this the genesis of yourself and Dean Castronovo starting to work together? Or is that something that happened a lot earlier? No, that was it. That was really it. Um, that was, uh, yeah, um, that was, that was quite an experience. Um, it was very, very interesting working with Dean. Um, apart from the fact that he is one of the very best drummers I've ever worked with. Um, when he came in, you know, when I first started working with him, he, the band were pretty much picked before I got involved with the exception of Steve Vai, who was there for a little while Hmm. and um, Zach came back in. Um, But yeah, Dean was there. I don't remember quite how he, how he got in, but he was, um, he, he, he played a lot. (laughs) Hmm. He was very, uh, he, he, he was, uh, he, he, he added a lot. Let's put it that way. Over you know over the course of rehearsing and, and working with him, we really kind of developed a way of of, of him being able to rein himself in and oh, yeah. uh, play more to the song. And um, I, I, I I came to see what a what a fantastic drummer he is, um, and how quickly he could adapt to any situation. And he and he is one of those rare guys who can hit a drum so hard because he's really big and strong Hmm. but at the same time he knows how to get a really good tone out of it and that is so hard oh yeah indeed Indeed. you know i mean most guys who don't know how to play they'll just drop a stick right down on on the drum head just leave it there and just choke the drum he's just lift it right back up and the drum would just go like you know it talk oh yeah it's just it's wonderful to to work with someone like that like he he was just so great yeah, I remember I first came across him many, many years ago, I think before I heard him on Osmosis, when he was playing with Marty Friedman and Jason Becker on the Cacophony album. And then I think he did uh, yeah. the Marty Friedman solo album. And I started seeing his name appear quite a bit through the years after that, and I can understand why. He's just a studio gun. He gets it. Mm-hmm. He gets it. And... Yeah, he is. He is. And very musical. Mm. There's a, there was somebody else that now here's a rumor that I want to put to rest or otherwise, but I hear James Lomenzo was initially supposed to be the bassist on Osmosis. Was that is that the case? And did, were any of his parts recorded? James who? 
James Lomenzo from White Lion and was in Megadeth subsequently and a few other things? Um, maybe. I, I, <laughs> I, I never heard anything about it if he was. There you go. Then he wasn't. No, that's... Because yeah. I heard him... No, I, I was under the impression that it was going to be Geezer. At one point, um, I think that... Um, I think Bob Daisley came in. Oh, really? For a minute. Um, wow. Okay. Yeah, who's a, he, he's wonderful, but I, I just I, he didn't really suit the um, the vibe of the record. Yeah, Bob's Australian as well. I've spoken to him a couple of times. He's from Sydney, and uh, oh, really? Yeah, yeah. A lot, of, not a, not a lot of people know that. Yeah, because he spent so much time abroad. But um, yeah. yeah, he's uh, he's a magnificent bassist, and he was the one that Ozzy turned to pretty much through the guts of his career, really, didn't he? Well, I think it's probably fair to say, my comment's here alone again, but if it wasn't for Bob, I don't know whether Ozzy would have had a career after um, leaving Black Sabbath. I don't think... I, I certainly couldn't argue that. I mean, he he co-wrote a lot of stuff with him, and he was just... He was definitely a really good um, foil. He was he, he, he worked really well for, for Ozzy. Absolutely. Mm. Another album that I think is very, very overlooked, it wasn't so much at the time when it came out, but these days I think people have forgotten that it's around, and that's um, Mike Ness and Social Distortion's White Light, White Heat, White Trash. Now, I reckon right. that is one of the best-sounding rock albums out there ever. Okay, that, that album... Really? Yeah, you know why? Because it sounds great in shitty speakers in the car. Okay, when you're... <sighs> When you're 18 or 19, like I was at the time, and you get that album, and you put it on in your Suzuki Swift, so I, don't, I don't know what the equivalent is in the States, but in your Suzuki Swift, like a little small compact car, and you've got an AM radio only and an aftermarket CD player in it, that thing just jumped out of the speakers. There were many nights I remember driving home from work with that album cranked. You know, it's got some serious grit. And, it, you know, the other thing, though, it sounds like it wouldn't be out of place in a stadium in terms of the sound that you pulled. And I understand you worked with Dean Castronovo on that album as well. But uh, what was it like working? Right. What was it like working with Mike on that one there? Um, that was another hard record to make, believe it or not. I actually, um, I, I remember getting some shit from uh, a couple of people about why it took me so long to make that that record in particular. Hmm. Um, you know, and. Uh, I, I there was just a specific vision there, and uh, you know I I really I, I wanted it to be a really good representation of Mike as a performer and the band as performers and the kind of energy that they bring to their uh, to their shows and I felt that even though they'd made really good records they'd never done that like they never really had that that kind of electricity no, on right. any of their recordings, hmm. you know? And I, I mean, I, I can't fault any of the other people that they've, who they've worked with, you know, um, one of whom is Dave Jordan, who I think is absolutely fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, but, um, you know, I, 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 it felt to me like they needed something that was a little bit less restrained because I felt that when Mike would go in to sing, um, it just felt like, I wouldn't say it felt like he was holding back. Uh, well, that's, that, I guess that is how it felt, but I know that he wasn't consciously doing that. It was more a sense that, I got a sense that he didn't really feel comfortable in the studio, in the recording studio as a place to, real, to, to perform. So hmm. we spent okay. a very long time doing vocals on that record.
Um, you know, and uh, finally, I think we got we we got to a place where he just really started to let loose and open up, and and it, and I think he, it finally it finally clicked with him, and uh, that was a that was a great moment. Hmm. You know, it was really wonderful to see to to kind of, to help him get to that place where he was where he could really look at what he did and go like, oh shit. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> There's a recording that reminds me of how I of how I sound when I'm actually or how I feel when I'm when I'm doing a live show. Mm. Yeah. Well, for, for anybody that listens to this, I reckon that album there is one of the best that you've been on. And that's my personal opinion, of course. But it's still it still just sounds very vital to this day. Some of the songs have dated, I think, a little bit. But the sound, the sound, it just, man, it just, even on bloody MacBook Air speakers, it still jumps out at you. I was listening to it before we, we connected, mm. or a couple of hours before we connected. When I got up, I put it on because I wanted to be reminded about... What, how I felt when I first heard that album because I wasn't a fan initially. I didn't know anything about Social Distortion, but I thought that might have been their first album when it came out, actually, <laughs> how vital it was. And then you cool. sort of go back and realise that he's been around since the early 80s or, or thereabouts. So, hey, yeah. I'll, I'd better do a time check. Are, are you cool to have a, to field another couple of questions or have we got to wrap things up? Yeah, that's fine. That's right. fine. Well, um, Courtney and Hull. So you worked with uh, Courtney on Celebrity Skin and on Nobody's Daughter. Now, let's, yeah. let's talk about this album, America's Sweetheart, because I don't know why she overlooked you for that one there. Because she picked Josh Abram, who I know is a fantastic producer in his own right and has done a lot of good things elsewhere. And there were a few other producers that worked on that album from 2004 with her. But I've, I've had, a, I've had a, a few listens to that album in preparation for our conversation. Now, what she seemed to lack, and this is my take on it, of course, is she seems to lack a critical eye, critical analysis, all of the things we spoke about at the beginning of our conversation on that album. That's what I think your great strength was and what you brought to Celebrity Skin. Because I'm one of those people that feel as though Celebrity Skin is a significant jump from Live Through This. Okay, And I've got both albums and I've listened to them a lot when they first came out. But that critical analysis is something that you would have given her. So do you know why she overlooked you for, for the solo album when she ended up working with you on Nobody's Daughter in 2010? Um, not really. <laughs> no. Uh, and it's never, never occurred to me to, you know, to ask. It's, it's really, you know, it's, it's her choice. Hmm. Um, I, I, I think that she could have benefited from that. Although I don't think that she was in a place where it would have mattered. I mean, unfortunately, I think nobody's daughter suffered from, from that as well. And I think that mm. she was in a place in her life where it just, I, it, it wasn't easy to have a conversation like that, which is one of the reasons that I wasn't able to finish the record because I just felt that we weren't getting anywhere at a certain point and that it mm. wasn't really going to shape up the way I felt the record with her should have. Um, you know, so we kind of had a, we, we had a, a parting of the ways there. Mm. Um, but yeah, I, 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 uh, yeah, from that perspective, yeah, I'm incredibly proud of Celebrity Skin. It's one of my favorite um, projects that I've worked on, and it, I, like like so many of them, it took a lot of work, you know. But the the development that you're talking about also came from the fact that the band really had a specific idea in mind for that record. That it wasn't just it, it wasn't just um, me coming along and sort of imprinting something on them. Like they really wanted 
a very significant change from the last record. They wanted to make a very, very polished sounding pop record. Hmm. Um, and that was, that was basically part of the mission statement for them. That was, that was what they wanted going forward. And I, I had to honor that. Hmm. Well, I think, yeah, I think Celebrity Skin is going to be, I think it's one of the best rock albums of the nineties. I, I don't, I think there's there's this temptation for people who weren't around back then, you know, a lot of these journalists at Pitchfork and Vice and all the rest of it to reframe a lot of albums that came out ben, then through the lens of right now. But back in those days, I, I thought Live Through This is a very raw album that had potential, but I don't think that it was as fully realised as what it could have been. Now, with Celebrity Skin, I do think that's a fully realised album in that, in that it is polished and that it and already made the point that it's a progression, but it's an album that sounds great on a variety of speakers, which is so important these days in particular. So 20 years on, the album still sounds relevant in my view. So I hope people give you that well, feedback. I appreciate mate. that. Yeah. Well, thanks. I mean, it, it, I, I, it's always funny because once in a while, not very often, I'll, I'll turn on the radio, um, and it's crazy because that song will come on every so often. I'll be like, "Oh wow, <laughs> is that is that good. is that Malibu that comes on?" Because we still hear Malibu in Australia quite a bit. It's that or Celebrity Skin, you know, yep. and um, and it's and it still pops. I mean, it's still got a it's still got a good um, it still sounds good. It still sounds pretty fresh, um, you know, and. She, they, I, they, they just had a really good thing going. Like she and Eric were, um, they were very good writing partners, and uh, you know, and, and she was at the, she was at the height of her, her creative powers at that point. She was such a great lyricist. Um, I just used to marvel at the stuff that she would come up with. It was very, you know, it was very personal. And uh, it packed a lot of wallop, you know. She's hmm. like when she when she's on, she's really good. Yes, yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's very true. When she's focused, uh, when she she wasn't that focused when she came down here in 1995, I think it was. But in 1999, when she had Melissa in the band, they were on point. They were a fantastic mm-hmm. rock rock and roll band back then. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. So, mate, I've got one more album artist to ask you about. I really want to appreciate. I really want to thank you, and I appreciate your time here. And this, the, for people that don't know out there that are listening, you've worked with Corn, the Chili Peppers, the Cult, uh, the Verve Pipe, um, Soundgarden. There's that huge album that you worked with with them, Super Unknown, from the uh, from 1994. Uh, Black Label Society, the Bronx. There are so many wonderful artists you, you worked with, but what the last one in particular I want to ask you about is Marilyn Manson on Mechanical Animals. Now, I feel. Okay. Critic, I feel as a musician, that's Manson's high watermark. Okay, so I think again, the jump from Antichrist Superstar to Mechanical Album Animals is similar to the jump from Live Through This to Celebrity Skin, in that it's a marked improvement in songwriting and also production. Okay, now I, I definitely don't think he's done anything as critically successful since that. It might have been more commercially successful albums that he's done, although I'm not even sure about that, but I do feel like... Actually, no. (laughs) Well, there you go. (laughs) Now, I have spoken... I have spoken to some people that have worked with Manson and they've said, yes, he has his ways, but he's actually very diligent and a very professional recording artist who just wants things done right. And I think sometimes people have misunderstood that. But what was your experience like with him in the studio? Um, he, <laughs> he, 
he's definitely a character. Um, you know, I think he could be very, very, um, he could be very difficult <laughs> to, um, to, to deal with at times. Um, you know, because it was it's his party, and you know, blah 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 blah. But when it came time to record, um, I can say with with uh, a lot of confidence that um, I don't recall him ever um, not being as professional as possible, and also not having a very very good work ethic. He was mm. he he worked so hard to get things right. Um, he was uh, you know. He was really on it, and I think that record meant a lot to him because it was really a departure from form in a lot of ways. Like, he was moving away from the more goth aspect yeah, of Marilyn Manson. Although, to me, it kind of, like, it was it's sort of a mutation of, like, the whole goth thing rather than, like, a complete departure away. And uh, it was very ambitious, you know, and he, he took a lot of shit for it as well, hmm. um, even, especially from his record company, believe it or not. Well, okay. Um, yeah. Well, you know, because a lot of the imagery that he was using was very controversial. And uh, I think record companies tend to prefer if an artist is a known quantity that they kind of retain that or remain in that familiar space so that they can market them. And when, they, when the artist moves away from that, the record company flips out because they don't know what to do. Um, you know, and I saw that happen a little bit with Universal in this case. Yep. Um, although, as I said, the record went on to be, uh, yeah, it's definitely his bestseller. But um, it was he—he was—he's very talented. Everyone in his band hmm. was and is incredibly talented. I mean, um, Twiggy is definitely like having him in the band was really, really important. Yes. and Pogo too. Like they—they—they just—they—they they made up. They, they had this very unique framework that you really couldn't find anywhere else. Um, hmm. And it was wonderful. It was wonderful. I'm very proud of that record also. Hmm. Well, you've got a career to be proud of. Um, I want to thank you so much for answering my many questions and sharing so much. You have been listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast series and syndicating for the A-List online. My name's Andrew Mackay-Smith, and that was a conversation that featured producer extraordinaire Michael Beinhorn, thank you so much for listening.